Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, November 7th. I'm Ezra Wall. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's program, find out what's behind Mississippi's high rate of sexually transmitted diseases. There is still a great deal of stigma regarding sexually transmitted diseases and HIV. And we have geographical barriers. Those are some of the things that magnify the effect in Mississippi. And in StoryCorps, a conversation about a family who was surprised to see justice in the 1960s. And hear about a new program that's getting inmates to think for a change. Plus, learn how hunting season could bring opportunities for Mississippi landowners. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is ranked second in the nation for the prevalence of sexually transmitted diseases. That's based on the latest numbers from the Centers for Disease Control. Researchers say there's an across-the-board increase in gonorrhea infection in the top 10 worst states. Dr. James Stewart is Director of Communicable Diseases at the State Department of Health. He says, though the number of cases is rising nationwide, Mississippi has some unique challenges. Stewart also says the most affected populations are segmented by age, sexual preference, and race. One half of all new cases in the state, for example, occur among young people ages 15 to 24 and among African-American men who have sex with men. Here's Dr. Stewart. Mississippi does have a high prevalence of sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, but we're following pretty much the same pattern as the rest of the country. Approximately half of our STD cases, new ones are occurring among people aged 15 to 24 years. Uh, We're also seeing an increase among specific populations, including African-American men who have sex with men. So in that sense, we're very consistent with the rest of the country. I I think the difference is with Mississippi, the magnifying effect is Uh, lack of accessibility to care. There is still a great deal of stigma regarding sexually transmitted diseases and HIV. And we have things like geographical barriers, like lack of transportation, perhaps the time it takes to get to a clinic and and appointment times. I think those are, are some of the things that we're looking at that magnify the effect in Mississippi. Of the various types of diseases that we've heard about, um, what is the the one that occurs most often? The one that occurs most often is we're seeing a lot of chlamydia and gonorrhea. Uh, Chlamydia, however, often can be asymptomatic, and so people don't always pick up that they have it uh, until, you know, there's a more advanced infection. But chlamydia and gonorrhea can be easily treated. The thing that we are more concerned about generally has been syphilis and HIV because they are more dangerous diseases, obviously, and and can have a significant impact on people's health. We've heard a lot over the years about the prevalence of HIV and AIDS in Mississippi, and in particular in the Jackson area. How are we doing in Mississippi with that trend uh, in terms of the educational efforts that have been going on the last few years? Is, Is that making a difference? Well, actually, if you look at rates year over year, Mississippi has maintained a pretty steady and consistent rate of new HIV infections. 
the main difference between Mississippi and some of the other states in the country is we tend to only identify people later on when they're almost at the point of developing AIDS. And we would like to be able to find folks sooner because we have treatment available and there are resources for people to get treatment before they become so ill. What's it going to take to uh, start to stem the tide against sexually transmitted diseases in Mississippi? I would say that there are several major points that we need to take away in order to try to combat STDs. One of the most important would be that we have got to work on stigma. People need to be more comfortable talking to their medical providers about their sexual activity and asking for testing with their own personal physicians or providers. People need to be tested and People also have have got to continue to practice the uh, safer sex methods uh, that we know about. This is going to include elements of education. Other than that, we need to make sure that we make resources available, both within our healthcare institutions and in the community, to provide uh, testing and treatment. So in terms of why some of these numbers might be increasing, you know, are people engaging in more risky behaviors or, or is technology playing a role or what's leading to that? Yeah, we're seeing, I think, two intertwined things. We're seeing a rise in condomless sex among men who have sex with men. Um, Sometimes that has been explained by the fact that because HIV treatment has become more effective, people feel comfortable being more risky, and that's a very bad thing. But combined with that is the rise of the anonymous dating apps and hookup apps that we now see. That makes it more difficult once we identify somebody who has been infected by syphilis or HIV to find their partners because we have resources available for those partners for testing and treatment, but only if we can find them. Dr. James Stewart is with the Mississippi State Department of Health. Dr. Stewart, thank you very much for this valuable information. Thank you. Deja Abdul-Haq is Director of Organizational Development at My Brother's Keeper, which operates a medical clinic and educates teens and parents she tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the most affected groups need to need an open forum for learning. Ironically, I believe that these two priority populations, these two communities, are two communities that are not given opportunities to actually talk about sexual and reproductive health in a way that's scientific and sound. Our young people are going to school, they're talking about sex with each other, and it's not scientific or sound. Our gay and bisexual communities don't feel open or respected enough to have candid conversations about their sexual and reproductive health. And in the meantime, in isolation and in this bubble, STIs are becoming a byproduct of the silence. Do Mississippi public schools teach sex education? I remember when House Bill 999 was passed. I was expecting something to come home. You know, my children have been in the field of HIV prevention and education for years. They've helped pass out condoms with me at barbershops and beauty shops. So when I'm talking to them about what they're learning in school as it relates to sexual and reproductive health, I'm not getting anything. So my short answer to you is a very personal one. As a parent of children in Jackson Public School, I have yet to hear them say anything about learning anything related to sexual and reproductive health. So what they're getting, they're getting from friends, they're getting from TV, they're getting from social media. 
Yes, indeed. And it's twofold. One, in the past, when we had conversations with young people, let's say you got together as young people and you talked about the taboo set, it was for a moment and then you went on about your business, right? Because you didn't have perpetual access to each other. Now these young people, with all of these uncanny ideas about sex, they're sharing them constantly with each other via social media. So you're constantly, young people are being fueled with all of these unhealthy ideas or unhealthy suggestions as it relates to sex. The T on the street is not about prevention or condoms or delaying sex or having communication with your sexual partners about being tested. They're not talking about that at all. And then, of course, the Internet itself just gives you access to all the sensational information, but none of it is scientific or sound. So our young people are going out into the world with a jaded idea about what sex is and what reproductive health is, and they're not properly armed to prevent STIs. And I think that this is what we get as a result, high rates. So how do we turn this around? Do we need to rethink teaching and sex education in school and how it's done, have a standardized approach? Whose responsibility is it? The idea is bring all the experts and the experience in the room. And I'll say, parents, you're always experienced because you're raising kids. So there's no such thing as an expert parent. We're all trying and we're doing the best that we can. But science is science and science is solid. So when I talk to you about how chlamydia is transmitted and how syphilis is transmitted and what are the signs of, you know, um, second stages of syphilis and, and third stages, then you're better armed to figure out what to do. But we just want parents to talk to their kids about prevention. We believe that we t- if we tell them don't have sex, they just won't have sex. The STI rates are saying otherwise. Our young people are having sex. So we have to talk to them about better ways of having sex. And then figure out why they're having so much sex. There's a reason. You know, are they doing it for recreation? Do we have people that are dealing with self-worth issues and this is the way that they rectify that void? There are reasons that our kids are having the type of sex and the amount of sex that they're having. Thank you very much for your insight and your expertise. Thanks so much. My brother's keepers, Deja Abdul-Haq with MPB's Desiree Frazier. Coming up on StoryCorps, it's the story of how one African-American family was surprised to see justice carried out in the 1960s after a tragic night in their own home. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. In this week's StoryCorps, James Harris shares a harrowing story of an African-American family and three white assailants on a 1950s Mississippi plantation. The three men came to the Harris home and unsuccessfully tried to sexually assault Harris's mother. The men were jailed but escaped. And that's where our story begins. They came back to our house, and this time they decided that they wanted to hurt someone. So they broke into the house. My father was trying to get to the kitchen because he had an old shotgun or rifle in the kitchen. He was trying to get to the kitchen, but he was shot in the back before he could make it. And he was paralyzed for the rest of his life from that. And according to my mother, there was only one man who did all the shooting. The other two people did not kill anyone. And he had set it up so that the two younger guys were posted, one in the front yard, one in the backyard, to keep everybody inside so that he could do all the killing inside. I don't know which child was shot first. My mother says that she remembers going to the back door and that the two little girls, my two sisters, one was four, the other one was eight. They were hanging on to her nightgown, and she went to the back door, and the man in the backyard said, if you don't go back inside, I'm going to shoot you, and he fired into the air. 
that frightened my mother, and she went back inside. She said that from that point, she doesn't remember when she lost the girls. She says she doesn't remember what happened to them from that point on. But she went back inside, and when she went back, she saw the man shoot my 12-year-old brother and saw him fall against the fireplace. And she decided to try the front door. She went to the front door, and the man in the front yard said, if you don't go back inside, I'm going to shoot you. She had just seen her 12-year-old son shot inside, and she decided that if I go back inside, I'm going to get shot there too. And she was able to reach up, grab the gun, and push it aside. The man who was outside was not a killer. He allowed her to escape with me in her arms. She says that as she was running away, she looked back and she saw them forcing my 14-year-old sister from underneath the house where she was hiding. She saw them forcing her to come out and she said that it was one of the worst feelings she ever had because here she is running away with her baby, but she's seeing that her daughter is, is in imminent danger. She said she just had to make the decision to keep going. So she fled to another home of another tenant farmer on the plantation. My sister, the 14-year-old, was shot, and she was shot twice. Left for dead, but she survived. It was daylight before anybody came down to see what was going on. She said that my sister told her that when she came to, she went inside the house. She was dazed, of course, and my father was still alive. He was paralyzed, but he was still alive. But she went inside and she saw my brother and the other sister, and one sister had been killed, as she thought they were killed. But the four-year-old was still alive when she went in the house. And she told my mother that the four-year-old said to her, that man hit me in my stomach because she didn't realize, she didn't know what a shot was. She just knew she was hurt. She said, that man hit me in my stomach. She was found on her knees trying to climb into bed, the four-year-old was. They arrested them, and they had a trial. This is where this story is different from most of the stories that happened at that time in Mississippi. Usually when something like that happened to a black family or to a black person, Nothing happened to the people who did it if they were white, but this was different. They were actually prosecuted, and not only were they prosecuted, but the prosecutor was seeking the death penalty for the man who did the killing, and his trial lasted a while. In the trial of Leon Turner, Leon Turner was the man who did the killing. His trial ended in conviction. The strategy of the prosecutor was to try him for the murder of the youngest child first. He was tried for the, the murder of the four-year-old. My mother says that they told her, the prosecutor told her, that they were going to try him for that one first, and if they weren't able to get a conviction on that one, that they wouldn't be able to get a conviction on any of them. I was told that in the 60s, we elected this governor named Ross Barnett, and he was of course, one of the great segregationists of our state. I was told that Ross Barnett actually gave him a pardon and allowed him out, and that when the owner of the plantation found out about it, he sent somebody to Jackson to tell the governor, 
If you do not put him back in prison, I have several armed men on my plantation, and when we see him, we are going to kill him on sight. So he went back to prison and never came back. To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps mobile tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. And you're listening to Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Ezra Wall for Karen Brown. The Mississippi Department of Corrections is trying to better prepare inmates for life after prison. MPB's Ashley Norwood reports on a recently implemented program called Thinking for a Change. Thinking for a Change is a three-month program designed to reduce the number of repeat offenders. It is a cognitive behavioral therapy that has been proven to be effective in changing the thinking patterns of criminals. The Department of Corrections ended its former paramilitary-style program to replace it with this evidence-based program when state law passed in 2015. Dr. Barry Glick is one of the authors of the national program. He says it could reduce the rate of repeat offenders and save taxpayer dollars in the state. Cognitive behavioral interventions in general will reduce the cost to the taxpayers. It reduces health costs because it lets people get hurt. Democratic State Senator Willie Simmons is a member of the Corrections Committee. He believes recidivism programs have not been a priority for some members of the legislature. I get frustrated when we refuse to invest dollars in after-prison programs because it's penis. Early intervention is penis as well as prevention if you deal with it and dealing with transitioning offenders and working with them to make sure that they stay out. Simmons formally assisted in pre-release programs for the state penitentiary in 1975. He says this program, Thinking for a Change, could help those released from prison from returning to a life of crime. Ashley Norwood, MPB News. Coming up, learn how hunting season could bring opportunities to Mississippi landowners. This is Mississippi Edition on Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell, the host of Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Each week, Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, Associate Professor of Finance at Mississippi College, joins me and answers questions about credit, investing, saving for retirement, and all things finance. Also, we invite you to call in and share your successes in navigating the personal finance challenges that we all face. Money Talks, Tuesday mornings at 9 on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Ezra Wall. The fall and winter season may slow some businesses in the state, but the hunting season can offer additional income to Mississippi landowners. Private lands with high-quality habitats for wildlife are often more difficult to find, and with an ever-increasing number of in-state and out-of-state hunters looking for these locations, property owners can offer recreational hunting leases. Officials say there's several issues landowners need to keep in mind, though, when they allow sportsmen to use their property for hunting, fishing, or other recreation. Daryl Jones is professor of wildlife at Mississippi State University. He works with both the Extension Service and the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture. He tells MPB's Karen Brown there are multiple opportunities. The fall is the primary season for hunting, of course, with big game and small game. Our big game primarily is white-tailed deer, but you also have squirrel, rabbit, 
uh, waterfowl seasons in the fall blends over into the first of next year, as many of the other seasons do. Bobwhite quail also starts uh, historically on Thanksgiving Day. The only spring hunting season, to my knowledge, is our eastern wild, wild turkey, and that starts mid-March and runs to the uh, to May 1st, so basically the end of, of April. But everything else is fall, so there's a number of hunting seasons, but they're all regulated. You know, there's rules and game laws in place. Is the majority of hunting land public as compared to homeowners or landowners who lease their property? We're fortunate in the state to have quite an amount of acreage of public hunting lands. You've got national forest. You've got national wildlife refuges, and then you have state lands, which are uh, predominantly will be wildlife management areas that the state will run, and that's primarily Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. And then there's some other public lands as well that you can check regulations on, but that's a good area of property in the state that is open to anyone that has a valid Mississippi hunting license. Now, private lands, because it's more traditional and primarily in the South to uh, lease land for hunting, many landowners take advantage of that. Some will offer their land for a fee. That trend line is actually going up uh, in recent years. So in Mississippi, we are fortunate that there's landowners that offer their land for for individuals to pay. Now, let me ask you this. Would a hunter pay a landowner for the season or for a weekend? Right. can be both. And and typically, it could be for a season like for the deer season for only deer hunting rights. Or another option could be that the hunter will pay for a period of time, an annual lease for all the hunting, for example, or all that, you know, for all hunting seasons. And so the fee will be probably determined by that. When you get into more shorter-term leases for a a weekend or a week, that would be more like what I would call an outfitter-type business where they may be guided hunts, where a landowner will be in business catering to clients to bring them out for a hunt for example, and they charge for that. And, of course, that's more of a turnkey type arrangement. Daryl, is it a problem for landowners who don't want to lease their property and they find hunters on their property? That's a situation I hear a lot about. And most hunters will be very ethical in that they follow state game laws. They follow Mississippi laws and federal laws. And if they see a marked property line, they won't trespass on a landowner's property if they don't have permission. But there's some out there, as you would suspect, that do that. We do a lot of landowner workshops, and I've had individuals that don't live at their property, may even live out of state, that they've got family land in Pontotoc County or wherever it may be, and they asked me, they said, well, I hadn't been back to the property in, in a while. Do you think anybody's hunting it? And my short answer is, I bet they are. My advice to landowners is be vigilant and post their property and check the property, make sure there's not trespassers out there. Are there publications that list these private lands for hunting? If I want to lease property, I can run an ad in the newspaper, but that can be somewhat problematic because I, I may get thousands of calls. You know, people will see that. And typically, from my experience, landowners don't like to do that. They like to be. Uh, a little bit more selective in who they have uh, on their property, so they do it through other mechanisms. We're actually putting at Mississippi State a website together. We haven't haven't launched it yet, but it's predominantly for landowners, the ones that are interested in leasing their properties. 
just free of charge, you'll be able to list your land on our website for hunters to then find that property and through the website contact the landowner. The landowner in that way, Karen, will be kind of behind the firewall, so to speak, so their name won't be out there. And that's Mississippi Outdoor Adventures. Daryl Jones is the Extension Wildlife Professor at Mississippi State University Extension Service through the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture. Daryl, thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed being here. And here's a website with more information. It's naturalresources.msstate.edu. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of local programs all morning long, and then join us again tomorrow for another episode of Mississippi Edition. It's only right here on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu.